Amen. Now, before we get into the passage today, I thought it might be helpful if I just take a few minutes to explain a little bit about how we're going to approach today. You may hear three chapters. We cut worship short. Oh, no. Um, I hope that's not our experience together. I plan to kind of work through chapter 10. We're going to read through the entirety of chapter 11, and then we're going to work through chapter 12 together. So we're just going to kind of take our time. Each chapter presents kind of the main point for the day uh, when, as it comes to the three points of the sermon. Uh, but I, I want to make sure that at the outset, we don't kind of disconnect from what we were just doing in worship. I was thinking about the, uh, <clears throat> the presence of God. And we'll talk about that at times as, as something that we long for, as something that is sweet, we're in the midst of it, as something that is it's reviving to our souls. I think those are, those are right ways to refer to the presence of God. It's a presence that we don't deserve to be in apart from Jesus Christ. It's a presence that is, is the holiness of God where we're not able to be in his presence, it, it kind of that, that throne room, without Christ. And we talk about his presence, that it's, it's everywhere at all times, in all ways. And, and we'll talk about the presence of God in very practical ways. But I wonder if sometimes we kind of leave the spiritual aspect of our Christian life at presence and worship. I'm not sure that they are exclusively synonymous with one another. And what do I mean by that? Well, I think that there's also spiritual warfare that we should talk about. And instantly, right there, I may have, I have, I may have gained half of the congregation's attention in one way, like, is he going to finally talk about it? And then the other piece is like, hey, listen, I'm checking out now. Spiritual warfare. It's something that on our own can seem very daunting and very troubling. The idea that there are powers and principalities behind what happens in Scripture, it all starts to sound very philosophical, and, and where does that connect to our faith? And we can wrestle with those questions. And so rather than wrestle through, even informed by God's Word, sometimes we will kind of sit back and just say, I like singing about the presence of God. I'm not sure I want to think about spiritual warfare. I don't think we have a choice. I don't think Scripture tells us that that's an option for us. I actually say that in love and care. But I'm also not sure that every moment that we walk through is the devil trying to get us. So I want to be careful, right? I want to be careful to, to hold in tension the things that we read in Scripture about the idolatry and the sin and the vile that comes out of our own heart as if we are going to offload the responsibility that to the devil's trying to get me. I mean, I agree with Denzel last Sunday night. The devil's going to come, come to get you at your high point. It's the only thing about last Sunday night I want to reference at all. Because that's true. That's spiritual warfare. So we can kind of be comfortable with it in sound bites, but not in reality. And Daniel 10 through 12 help us to understand spiritual warfare in its reality for us today. And it does so in a way that it kind of invites us in by equipping us to know what should we expect in the midst of this spiritual warfare. What should we anticipate? So we're going to get to that passage in just a moment, but I do want to read from Ephesians 6.12 to remind us that this is not just an Old Testament thing. What does Ephesians 6.12 tell us? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. In other words, there is a war happening that we don't see. There is a war happening that does not get a 24-hour news cycle. There is a war happening for us, for our lives, and for the glory of God. There is a war happening that the presence of God that we so enjoy singing about becomes our shield as we walk into battle in the, in the heavenly places. We think, I never thought of it that way before. 
just because sometimes we kind of segment out our faith, don't we? Well, I understand this piece, so I'll agree with that. I don't understand this piece, so no thank you. We treat it like vegetables. Maybe we'll take a no thank you bite by kind of acknowledging the sermon today, but it won't really make a difference in our lives. It won't be something that becomes a, a regular part of our spiritual diet. So I just wanted to say those things kind of at the outset. One, to just acknowledge these are difficult things to understand. But I trust today that the Holy Spirit will make it plain to us. Make it plain to us that we might live for the glory of God through our lives. Do you believe that to be true? I do. So let's look together. All right, chapter 10. Yesterday I had an interesting experience. Uh, Stephanie, I I think there's a group in the church that's getting ready to go through uh, the Bible study, The Armor of God. And so Stephanie and her siblings are going through it as well and kind of didn't know about it at the same time. I love when that happens actually. But God seems to be doing something. And so I had ordered a book for her and on the Echo show she came in and told me, she's like, hey, babe, um, the Echo just said that the armor of God arrived for you. It's like, cool, it's finally here. (laughs) It's been here all along, right? But it's just funny to see sometimes when even technology has to acknowledge the armor of God is available to us. And that Ephesians 6 passage that we were just reading about, it acknowledges just before those verses that the armor of God is available to us. It's something that we we can carry into battle with us. So I just want to remind us of that as we begin to look at Daniel chapter 10. So we, we once again come across Daniel as an old man. Uh, as an old man, Daniel kind of begins to feel like that teacher that you had in high school that's always been old. I think we all know that teacher, right? Daniel, at the, at, toward the end of the book, becomes that teacher where he feels like he's always old. But even as an old man, Daniel is seeking the face of God, and he is listening to God, seeking his face to understand what's going on around him. And we're introduced to this prophet who is no longer the man who appears to be on the diet that is now named for him, the Daniel diet. It it appears that he has kind of moved away from that. And I don't believe that this is the case. But what we are kind of introduced to is this prophet who is fearful and frail. Fearful because he sees something that troubles him, but he he is not given in to that fearfulness. He is not given into that frailty, he is still faithful to God in the way that he lives his life. And in the midst of this, he is going to be shown some, some of the earth, how it is that some of the earthly struggles that are going on actually reflect a far greater conflict that is happening in the heavenly realms. You may recall throughout this series, we've said that what it is that we want to do is not dare to be a Daniel, but we want to dare to believe in Daniel's God. In other words, we're not saying Daniel sets the example that if you just live like him, then you're going to have this victorious Christian life. Because Daniel actually introduces some things here that feel like defeat, if you think about them on the, on the earthly level. They look like defeat. Those around you may say, why is it that God has abandoned you as Job's friends did? Why is it that you're walking through these things? What have you done? And so we're not trying to dare to be a Daniel. We are daring to believe in the God that Daniel believed in and put his full faith and trust in. Throughout this book, we've seen themes of the sovereignty of God, that he rules and he reigns over all things. And it can be easy to think, yes, that ends at earth's atmospheres. And, and yet what God, what God is going to show us through his word today is that his rule and his reign is over everything that the eye can see and the unseen as well. In realms that are beyond what we can even imagine with our own mind. God rules and reigns there as well. But there is a conflict happening. And on our own, if we're honest, in our own frailty, in our own moments of struggle, this can strike fear in us as well. I mean, we we want to be faithful. I know that to be true of you as a church. I, I, I trust that you know that to be true of me as well. We want to be faithful. But if we're walking in this on our own, spiritual warfare can be a frightening thing. It can be a very frightening thing. So 
I think that's actually why it's helpful to kind of be introduced to Daniel in this state. Where, where is it that we see this? Well, it's in Daniel, actually, verses 2 and 3. It says, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. And what he's talking about and anoint myself is that this would have been like the oils that they would have used to, to help with dryness of the, the arid area that they were in. And so he's really kind of denying himself not only of food and those types of delicacies, but he's also denying himself any comforts in this world as well because he's been so troubled by the things that he sees in this vision. I think it's helpful, helpful for us to see Daniel in this state because it does show us that these, these fearful realities are a thing that can have an effect on us, but we don't have to be given into those things. There's this gracious care that seems to happen in the midst of this passage. This divine intervention that comes in. So here's Daniel kind of in this state of mourning. He's denying himself not only intake but things on the outside of his body as well. And in the midst of this, there's this gracious care that comes to him in verse 10. When an angel touches Daniel, assuring him of his love. Daniel 10.10 says this, And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he, that is the angel, said to him, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and and stand up, for now I have been sent to you. Now that's encouraging, isn't it? In In the midst of our weakness and our frailty, God can divinely intervene on our behalf and strengthen us to stand. That's an encouragement for us. Now you may notice that today we don't have quite as many scriptures as we normally would on the screens. I actually asked the guys to do that just because of how much there is. And and there's a moment where we're going to read in chapter 11 together. So if you have your phone or an app or your actual Bible with you, I'm going to give you the references that I'm reading from. I think it's important for us to see these words in God's word together. But I want us to be hearing these things as well because these are vivid chapters with a lot of very illustrative detail that's kind of given around it. And I I want our minds to be engaged in kind of dreaming and thinking about the things of God, not distracted by other things that may be in the midst of this. So in other words, today, I want your ears more than your eyes. Let's just hear the word of the Lord together and be encouraged as we read. Think about this. Spiritual warfare, I I mentioned it already, involves a divine action It's something that's happening outside of just this normal realm. In the beginning of Daniel chapter 10, as he is saying that he is receiving this word, he acknowledges that it is God himself that helps him to understand the word. So spiritual warfare, first and foremost, involves a divine action. But it requires reinforcements given through prayer and fasting. We see this as as Daniel is denying himself these things. Perhaps in this season of Lent, you've taken the time to deny yourself of something. A few months ago, we as a church went through a corporate week of prayer and fasting. Maybe that's something that is a, a regular part of the rhythms of your life. Fasting and prayer. How it is that we're able to commune with the divine. Spiritual warfare involves the reinforcements that are given through prayer and fasting. Note that the angel, when he comes to him, he he touches Daniel in a way that gives him comfort and care and actually gives him strength to stand in verses 17 through 18 in chapter 10, tell us that it actually gives him breath to even be able to speak of the things that he is experiencing, the things that he is seeing. What does that represent for us? It, It represents the grace of God intervening in the midst of those moments. Those moments that we may not even understand, the grace of God intervenes in the midst of those moments and it humbles Daniel to know this, that God is still sovereign, that God is still faithful, and he knows the love, peace, and strength of God. We see this in verses 11 and 19 as well. But what's the point of spiritual warfare? What's the point of it? Is it just this victorious Christian life? Ultimately, we'll know that victory on the day when Jesus returns again. But spiritual warfare, much like prayer, should, revol- should result in spiritual refreshment for us. 
It should result in spiritual refreshment. In other words, if you're walking through something and there's spiritual warfare involved and you're not experiencing spiritual refreshment, you, you might say it this way, you might hear some say it this way, that the, the, there was a strengthening of their inner man, there was this part of their soul that was strengthened in the midst of that. You might be doing it wrong. And I don't say that to sound harsh or anything like that, but if we think that spiritual warfare is only something where we're finally expelling all of this energy that we have pent up as if this is now the works that we can do on our own, we might be doing it wrong. And we're going to see more about that at the end of chapter 12, where we're actually invited through Jesus Christ into an eternal rest. Why? As believers, would we all of a sudden have all of these works added to what it is that we're supposed to do? We do get to participate in this spiritual warfare. We have a role to play, to be sure, but all of it does not rest on us. All of it rests on the completed and finished work of Jesus Christ. Our risen king, the one that we're going to celebrate in just a couple of weeks. Don't disconnect those truths from one another. So spiritual warfare can actually lead to spiritual refreshment. Think about verses 18 and 19. If you have your Bible open to Daniel chapter 10, let's look together. It says this, Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Kind of sounds like the song we were just singing, doesn't it? Resurrender. We have this moment with the Lord. We are refreshed in his presence. We are refreshed for his work, for his glory. And even in the midst of worship or spiritual warfare, which I believe is a part of worship, we can once again yield our lives to the sovereign over this earth and the sovereign over the heavens. Spiritual warfare should result in spiritual refreshment. Verses 18 and 19 that we just read show us that we should receive peace, strength, and courage through engaging in prayer and spiritual warfare. That we should receive insight of both earthly and heavenly truths. Those are the things that should be the result. Now let's look to chapter 11. Chapter 11 provides the content of the vision. So chapter 10 was providing us with what? It was the when and the how of, of how it was that Daniel was receiving this vision. Chapter 11 provides us with the content of the vision. And this is the passage we're going to read. I'm going to read it for us. Pray for me. It's a lot of verses. Thankfully, no funky names. Let's read together. And as for me. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I shall show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against them the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. Then a mighty king shall arise. Who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. I read that part already, didn't I? I'm three verses in. We have a long way to go. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. But not to his posterity. Nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north and to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants who he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch and from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their 
metal images in their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the kingdom of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands. But he shall not prevail, for the king of the north shall again raise a great multitude, greater than the first. And after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall... Rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills. And none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. And he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom. But it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land. But he shall stumble and fall, shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an extractor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person who, to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall utterly be swept away before him and be broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. And he shall become strong with, small, with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the providence. A province, and he shall do what neither his father nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land. With great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before. For the ships of Kittim shall come against him. And he shall be afraid and withdraw. And shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise men shall stumble. And they 
so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the end of time, for it awaits still its appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. Just a few verses more. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall pay no attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortress instead of these, a god whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortress with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but These shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver and the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites will follow in his train. But the news from the east and the north shall alarm him. And he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents before the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. And when we dive into a difficult chapter like this in Scripture, and I would encourage you, uh, for us to read all three of these chapters this morning would take about 28 minutes uh, in the way that I just read it. For you to read it at home takes less than 15. Daniel chapter 10 through 12. I would encourage you to read these chapters together. Take the 15 minutes. Take the time to read these scriptures together. But when we read scripture, even in those types of moments, even if you're just going to read through it and follow up, don't be ashamed if you don't understand everything in them. We, We don't have to approach scripture as if, We have to understand every single word in it. This is how God reveals himself, and there are things that we can learn and glean from it, but we don't have to be ashamed when we come across passages that are difficult to understand. But see, while we may not understand every verse of the 45 that we just read, this is the second longest uh, chapter in the book of Daniel. While we may not understand every verse, while it may be difficult to even get through three verses without stumbling like I just did, we can begin to understand things from this prophecy that help us even today. What is that? Well, this prophecy reminds us that even as the empires of the earth rise and fall, God is forever on his throne. You may think, I didn't read that verse. He's the one behind all of this happening. God is forever on his throne. There's a couple of verses that kind of point to this. If we look back over Daniel chapter 11. In verse 27 it says, For the end is yet to be at the time appointed. Who is it that appoints that time? It is God, the one who is reigning on his throne. He appoints the time. Verse 29 says, At the time appointed. Who appoints that time? Well, it wasn't the king of the north or the south or the wind from the east or the west. It is the God who reigns eternal on his throne. So God is revealing himself as the God of history. And he is the only one that can be our comfort for this life. And he is the only one that can be our comfort in death as well. See, God knows and directs the affairs of the world for his glory and for our good. And and you may say to yourself as, as we read through the passage, as we think about how it may be connected to history in different ways, and we've studied that in a little bit more depth throughout our Daniel series. I'm not going to go back through a lot of those details. That is online for you, should, should it be needed. But you may think to yourself, how is it that any man can know everything about history? Well, no man knows everything about the future. 
God doesn't place that burden on anyone here in this earth. No man knows everything about the future. And you think, well, didn't Daniel know? Yeah. But think about how Daniel knew. It was because God revealed it to him. God was the one who was disclosing these things to him. This wasn't just some knowledge he had in and of himself. This was the divine intervening and showing him something about the future to come for himself and for his people. Alistair Begg describes this section of Daniel like watching a soccer match on TV. Now, that's instantly how you know this wasn't my idea. I don't watch soccer matches on TV. Alistair Begg does. Now, I like Alistair in spite of this. He says it's like watching soccer match on TV. When you're watching sports on TV at times, perhaps you've ex- seen this. There, there's this wide shot of kind of the entire pitch or the entire court, or the entire field. It, it captures everything that's going on. And maybe even sometimes the surrounding elements. There's this wide angle shot that you're watching. And then there are moments where it kind of gets to this mid shot and you're kind of getting an idea of what's happening with the strategy of the team. And then it gets real close up to the action. Even now they have this super slow motion where you can see the action in infuriating detail. Especially when the refs get it wrong. Even after watching it in slow motion. It's an infuriating amount of detail. But, but that's kind of how we can understand reading scripture at times. That, that there is this wide view that happens. Where was the wide view in, the, in chapter 11? Well, verses 2 through 20 are actually a period of his, in history from 530 B.C. to 175 B.C. That's, a, that's 355 years of history in 19 verses. You may just think, wow, that, I didn't pick that up at all. Well, what he's covering there is what God is revealing to him of King Cyrus to King Antiochus. Now, we've, we've heard a bit about Antiochus Epiphanes. He's back kind of in these passages today. He serves as a type of Antichrist, and we're going to look at that in just a moment. And we've looked at him in other passages in some detail. But after those 19 verses, in verse 21, everything gets really tied into the action. We go from this wide angle of the lens of history to the real close-up in history. And what is it that Daniel's looking at there? He's looking at 175 B.C. to 163 B.C. That's 12 years that are covered in 14 verses. 12 years covered in 14 verses. Now, why does that matter? Well, in the same way that I can't text someone in a sarcasm font, Scripture doesn't have highlights and underlines for us, does it? So it uses literary methods to help draw our attention to something. This is a very practical way that we can be equipped to read our own Bibles. When Scripture slows down and begins to give us the details, it's drawing out a very important point in the midst of those passages. It's it's pointing to something and saying, this is important. This should be a point of emphasis or focus for us. So what's the emphasis? Well, this period is beyond Daniel's own lifetime. It's beyond the timeline that's even captured for us throughout the book of Daniel. This is the time frame when Antiochus Epiphanes is leading and ruling. I believe it's he who brings in what we read about as the the abomination of desolation. Where he's actually bringing in and he is, he is bringing in a new altar in the midst of the temple. And it's something that is an abomination to the temple itself. It, it removes that sense of holiness and set-apartness of where it is that the altar should be for the sacrifice of the people of God. Antiochus Epiphanes is a hideous leader. We've talked a little bit about uh, some, of his, some of his works But Antiochus Epiphanes serves as a hideous example for us of man's depravity and leadership. See, we believe in the total depravity of man without God. Antiochus Epiphanes serves as that. He's evil incarnate in the world today. 
Now, if you study history, if you think about history since then, you may think, well, you know, what about Mao Zedong? What about Mussolini? What about Hitler? What about Stalin? What about in, in more recent decades, Castro or the three decades long regime in North Korea or insert any other leader that may come to mind now? Well, if you stop and think about it, each one of these men can also sound a bit like Antiochus Epiphanes. They're brutal. They oppose, and more than that, they actually suppress the things of God. They fit the prototype of antichrists. They are like men ruling out of lawlessness, as we read about in the book of Daniel. So this helps us understand how it is that the people of God are swept up, yes, in a very real history, but how it is that they experience trials in the world events that we're told about in chapter 11. That's troubling thoughts. But even with these troubling thoughts, Daniel helps us understand that they all have something in common. These leaders all have something in common. And it's not just their depravity. It's not just their evil. It's not just their oppression and suppression. It is this, that they are appointed for a time. And their reign will come to an end. Their reign will come to an end. They are finite. They are not infinite. And this is where chapter 12 begins to lead us through how it is that the final vision concludes. Daniel begins chapter 12 asking how long the time of suffering will take to be completed. Again, we see a heavenly messenger clothed in linen that says that the span will be three and a half years in verse 7. But even Daniel doesn't understand in, in the time exactly what this means. The messenger urges him to be content with the fact that God has determined the time. Despite the future need for some to be refined by suffering or even death. That's difficult to think about. It's difficult to preach about. But it is contained in God's word. And you may wonder, how is it I'm supposed to connect that to just real life today? Well, God sends us a deliverer. I don't know what you're facing today. I don't know the trial or what may seem like suffering or tribulation. I was out with Shane last night and we were talking about a couple of months ago, Shane and Chip and I were in the office and we were having a conversation about some of the things that Chip and I have walked through in life. And it was almost this kind of weird story hour of tragic things. It was strange. And Shane said, do you believe you guys were suffering in the midst of those moments? And we were like, no, actually. And I think that's kind of mine and Chip's bent. It's very similar in that way. And I don't say this to sound rude, but a lot of times when we walk through the things of life, I don't necessarily kind of raise them to the level of suffering. Shane serves us in that way by saying, I think those actually are sufferings. We realize, you know, based on our personalities at times, we actually need a bit of bandwidth in the words that we even use. I think sufferings is one of those words. I think the trials of life that we walk through. Sometimes families can even experience this amongst different family members where something that happens to everybody as a group really has an impact on one and the other can almost act as if it hasn't happened at all. We see these in family units, sometimes even in friendship groups where you just realize different people process the things of life in very different ways. So we kind of joked in the office and said, okay, so suffering is a spectrum. Where are we landing on that? The things that we're walking through in life, where where is that landing in our life? And you know what? I'm served by those types of conversations. I I don't say that to pick on Chip or to to glorify myself or to pick on Shane in any way, right? I, I say that because we need those kinds of conversations with brothers and sisters to understand what it is that's going on in life. But I don't think even until I was studying over these last few weeks, Daniel 10 through 12, that I would have ever thought this was a part of what God has for me, and even in spiritual warfare. Even I can make those disconnections where I kind of put it away as if it were a box, like that happened. Oh, yeah. That was trying. Let's not go back. But God was doing something in the midst of that. See, I take the appointed time and say, time to close that up and put it away. God says, I had a purpose in the midst of that. 
Maybe it was drawing me more to himself. Maybe it was me leaning in in spiritual warfare in ways that I had not actually been acknowledging that that was a reality in life. Maybe it was me being called to pray in specific ways. Maybe it was me being called to obey and be faithful in different ways. God not only has an appointed time, he has an appointed purpose for those types of moments in our life. What is he doing in you right now? Where is he stirring you through these verses? Where is it that he wants to remind you that he is the deliverer to come? See, Michael shows up in the midst of these passages quite a bit to deliver the people. And that deliverance is going to include an everlasting life. And we have that to look forward to, but we can live for him today. We don't have to wait until that moment to live for him. He's bringing an everlasting life to those whose names are written in the book of life. We see that in Daniel chapter 7, verse 10, and in Daniel 10, 2 and 3. Daniel is going to seal the knowledge in a book, it says, in chapter 12. Until the end comes and there's a sufficient basis for its full understanding. And I believe that that will be when there is this consummation in heaven of the kingdom of God, for the glory of God, for all of eternity. And so you may notice that I'm not getting into a lot of different understandings of end times and prophecy and will it be a thousand years and what does the 70 years mean and all of those things. Why? Because the main point of all of those things is to point to the glory of God. To understand that there's an appointment for those, those rulers and those leaders. There's an appointed time for us as well. And there's an appointed purpose in the midst of those things. God will accomplish his purpose. Daniel 12, 1 through 4 say this. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as has never been seen. There was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut the words of the book up and seal the book until the end, until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. What are we being told here? You may hear me at times articulate it like this. None of us is promised tomorrow or the remainder of today. But we are all promised eternity. Choose your eternity today. Choose your eternity today. Fight for the right kingdom in this battle. Fight for the kingdom whose reign will not end. Fight for the kingdom whose time is not appointed because he is the God of all time. Fight for the kingdom who fights and intercedes for you through its suffering Savior. The one who now sits at the right hand of God interceding on your behalf as we're told in the book of Hebrews. See, Daniel 12, 1-4 actually supports the New Testament teaching of the raising of the dead. Consider Easter that we're going to celebrate in just a few weeks where we will celebrate how Jesus' resurrected body is the first of the coming harvest of the redeemed. His is the first of that coming harvest, restored in body and spirit, and all of those who are united to Christ, all of those who have submitted to his lordship, all of those who say his blood is enough, my works will never be enough, all of us will be included in that. That great resurrection, that great harvest. The vision recorded in Daniel chapter 12 describes the end times so that you and I will not be taken by surprise. And so that we can engage in spiritual warfare today. We can take heart in knowing that God who redeems his people, will be faithful to preserve them as well. He will preserve you through your sufferings, through your pain, through your trials, and even your tribulations, and he will bring you into the everlasting life that he promised to his son. You and I can believe that today. But throughout these three chapters, there's kind of a question that's posed in the background. How long until the end? 
I'm not here to tell you that it's going to be a particular time. I survived the 88 reasons that Jesus was coming back in 1988. I remember the news trucks being at our church at the time, wondering if they were going to capture video of the resurrection. I'm not here to try to tell you today the appointed time because it is God who knows that time. I'm here to tell you, let's look to him together. How long until the end? I'm not trying to make light at all. This is a question that has a tremendous amount of gravity. It has a tremendous amount of mystery surrounding it. It highlights what we can know with clarity. The people of God will endure to the end. So perhaps today it's best for us not to focus on this timeline or that. Pre-trib, post-trib, amalil, all the others. We're not going to focus on timelines. We're going to focus on an understanding that our trials, sufferings, the tribulations of this life have an appointed beginning, end, and purpose in our lives. Just as Daniel didn't understand all that this prophecy means, we, we will not be able to comprehend everything until it's fulfilled. But that doesn't change how it is that we're called to carry on for the glory of God. Aware of our mortality, clinging to the promise of rising in him. See, spiritual warfare doesn't overwhelm followers of Jesus. Even the realities captured in Daniel 10 through 12 Realities of death and life and trial and suffering and pain it doesn't overwhelm followers of Jesus because we have assurance given to us that the host of heaven is with us. Nothing on earth, nothing in a heavenly realm can overthrow the reign of the King of Kings. Just as we saw in Daniel 10, 5 and 6, we read... <clears throat> Of the majestic man dressed in linen who is sovereignly standing above the earth and declaring his absolute authority over all things in Daniel 12, 7. Daniel learns through these chapters that he has a champion who is fighting for him. Who is intervening on his behalf. Who is strengthening him. And so I say today, followers of Jesus don't need to be anxious about spiritual warfare. We don't need to be anxious about the deliverance to come. We don't need to even be anxious about demons. Because a vision of the glorified Son of Jesus Christ is more than enough to sustain us no matter what we encounter in this life. We don't have to fear these things because a vision of the exalted Messiah will give us the strength to endure the darkest night and the darkest trial. Can I say this? I've been through some of them. And he will provide. I've not been through all of them. I'm assuming you haven't either. But he will provide. We can look to him together. I think about it this way even. I don't need to fear spiritual warfare or deliverance or demonic because I know the name above all names. And through his son Jesus, he's called mine as well. And he's called many of yours as well. He's called so many that have gone before us. Do you know his name today? Do you call on his name? What is it that you turn to in those moments of trial? And how does it leave you in the midst of those things? So we see in these passages that evil is embodied in the Antichrist. And it, it, what it foreshadows is the rebellion of people throughout history who set themselves in opposition to God's rule and reign. But God is unchanging. He will overcome everyone who opposes him. He will fulfill every promise that he has made to his people in Jesus Christ, their king. Daniel was strengthened by the knowledge of ultimate triumph over evil, so we can also be strengthened in the face of, of national and global evils by the knowledge that our God's purposes will ultimately prevail. See, Jesus actually can be plainly seen in these texts. 
Even in texts that don't necessarily mention him explicitly, we can see him plainly. He is the Savior and King who stands in contrast to both Antiochus and the Antichrist. He stands in perfect contrast to that. Consider this, that Antiochus, the the Antichrist, was despised and King Jesus is desired. Antiochus, or the Antichrist, was deceitful and King Jesus is truthful. One hates the Holy Covenant, desecrates the temple, but King Jesus loves God's Holy Covenant and cleanses the temple. One abolishes sacrifices, the other makes a sacrifice once and for all. Are you beginning to see Jesus in the midst of these passages? One persecutes and murders God's people, the other refines and purifies his own people. One is willful in the way that he exalts himself and magnifies himself as God. The other is submissive. He humbles himself and he comes as God incarnate. One blasphemes God while the other glorifies God. One worships the God of war and the other is the God of peace. One has a kingdom that will end. The other has a kingdom that endures forever. Who do you want to live for today? See, never forget, Daniel 4.17 says that we know the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants and sets the lowliest of men over them. We studied that earlier in our Daniel series. And as we close today, as we consider what it means to believe in the God that Daniel believed in, We can believe that we will not bow to the Antichrist in any iteration that he may come. Because through the strength that God provides, we will exalt the humble, risen King. We can follow our crucified Savior into the heavenly rest that we read about in Hebrews. Yes, that path may lead through sufferings, trials, pain, or tribulation, but the end is eternal, blessed, sure, and secured by the blood of the Lamb. And the people of God can rejoice in that. So, people of God, let's rejoice in the victory of Jesus together as we stand and sing.